Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine, and when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right. Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million women worldwide who have joined Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you the bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code PFF. It's time you enjoy the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. What is up? Welcome into the Thursday episode of Talking Ball, September 15th here, previewing a little bit of the weekend slate. In a way, we got a jam-packed episode for you, though. We got power rankings off the top here. NFL power rankings, my favorite thing. My favorite thing early on in the football season every single year because they don't mean shit, but everyone clicks on them. They are, I feel like people have, sort of like a decade ago, they were the hottest thing in the streets, like everyone loved power rankings and like rankings in general. And people have like wised up to realize that they're all meaningless, but we're still going to go through them. Uh, so we're going to do those off the top. We're going to do rookie stock report. After that, we're going to do a little bit of bet recap. After that, the bets we gave on last week's show, a little bit of bets for the weekend. We're going to do PVOOs after that listener takes of the week. Would you rather? And then interviews with South Carolina head football coach, Shane Beamer and Illinois head football coach, Brett Bielema at the back end, but we got to start by pouring one out to Dr. Odds. Eric Eager, colleague here at PFF, was obviously on last Thursday's episode, had planned for him to be on weekly, the Thursday's episodes, but he left. He left us high and dry. No, he, he got a great opportunity with a, a new analytics company being formed uh, for player, or basically team building uh, purposes by... Uh, a billionaire hedge fund manager, Paul, jo Paul Tudor Jones, um, and he's going to be running their analytics department. Fun fact, they actually reached out to me about that job, and I told them I've never built an analytics model in my life. Um, so that conversation didn't last too long. But congratulations to Eric Eager. No more Dr. Odds on the show, though. His um, bets were so bad that he just left. He did go 0 for 3 in his bets, I believe. I know. And that he, and that he, he just, touted on this. Yeah. He was too he embarrassed. Too embarrassed to come back. I, I went, Sorry, Eric. Hate to see it. I went 50% last week. My two, my two, we'll get to that when we get to that. Let's get into the power rankings, though. And these aren't my power rankings. I'm commenting on another person's power rankings, which is my favorite thing to do. I don't want to make my own. I want to tell the other people why they're wrong. And we're going to go to the ringer for this. The ringer's own Austin Gale, an up-and-coming football writer. Uh, he wrote this, week one power rankings. Um, obviously leaves you know, PFF for this. Great opportunity to work for BuzzFeed, apparently, is what Austin wanted to do so badly. Uh, that's why he couldn't do here at PFF. No, I'm obviously just joking. He's doing some other cool stuff there in the works that aren't even football related. He's doing stuff. Um, he, I, I don't even know if I should be able to say, but he was 
he's doing stuff outside of the world of football in the media space now in, in TV shows that he's behind the scenes on. So look out for that for him. But we're going to comment on his power rankings. Go through 1 through 32, say why he's wrong, why maybe he's right sometimes. But number one, he has the Buffalo Bills. Um, that one's chalky. Uh, it, there's, you're not going to see a lot of power rankings right now with the Buffalo Bills anywhere outside of number one. But to me, Buffalo Bills are number one here. Kansas State Chiefs are number two. Tampa Bay Bucks are number three. And the Los Angeles Chargers are number four for him. He puts them all in the tier of the best of the best. And that's kind of just how I see it at the moment in terms of the most complete teams around the NFL. It is those four as it stands right now. The order, I think, will jockey for a good portion of the season. Like, we'll see one team go up to one after a good game. We'll obviously see on Thursday night tonight the Chiefs and the Chargers, like, the, ultimately who wins that game is going to get bumped up these power rankings. But, like, those are the four best teams right now. Whatever order you want to put them in, I am not going to complain about it. That is it. I personally, very high in the Bucks. I, I would probably have them above the Chiefs. I, I'd have them neck and neck with the Bills, if not number one. I think on – today's episode of It's Just Football, which if you're not tuning in, It's Just Football every day from 11 a.m. to noon, we do, me and Trevor Sikma, run through the NFL storylines. I put them at number one. I just think this team, when they're fully healthy, doesn't have a lot of weaknesses, doesn't have a lot of places to exploit. I'm excited about what they're doing on the defense side of the ball this year. So those are your top four, though. Then he's a man after my heart. His number five team, and he puts this second tier, we'll read off the second tier here, called the Flawed Deep Postseason Contenders. He really couldn't get a little pithier with that title there, Austin. The flawed deep postseason contenders here is this next group, and it's the Green Bay Packers at number five, which I'm over here like, bro, they, they're not number five right now. I, I, there is a lot of teams I would rather have over them at this very moment. My number five team, I, I would give it to the Cincinnati Bengals, truthfully. I know they lost, but it took a lot of flukiness putting that lightly for them to lose that game. I would put the Cincinnati Bengals at number five. Um, he has Green Bay Packers, though, so, again, Mander after my heart. At number five, at number six, he has Los Angeles Rams, seven Baltimore Ravens, eight Cincinnati Bengals. That's his tier of deeply flawed postseason contenders, which, calling them postseason contenders, I, I don't know, that's just a weird grouping. To me, the, the really overvalued team here is the Rams. I, I think the Rams have serious issues. Now, it was the Bills. Um... They did play the number one seed on this. You know, <laughs> They played the best team in the NFL, but they looked overmatched, which is not a good thing um, for your number six team in the NFL. So maybe the Bills are just that good, and the Rams will bounce back this week. But that one, I, I think the Packers and the Rams a little overvalued there for my money. I would have both the Ravens and the Bengals ahead of them at the moment, um, maybe even deeper, in, a little bit deeper down. And that's probably all I'd say definitely ahead of them at the moment. But that's your second tier. Third tier here should be playoff team. Starts at number nine. We have the Minnesota Vikings. He's high on the Minnesota Vikings, which I they came to play in week one. I think everyone's talked about the Packers perspective post game for that. Everyone's been like, should the Packers be worried? Are the Packers in trouble? Not a lot of people have talked about the fact that the Vikings have a legit D line now. I mean, one of their biggest weaknesses a year ago was that they couldn't pressure anybody. Um, that's going to change. Daniel Hunter back. Zadarius Smith back. Zadarius Smith was a problem in week one for that Green Bay Packers offensive line. So I, I do think this Vikings team is a legitimate, I, I don't know if I put them nine, but I will be surprised if they don't make the playoffs. 
you know, barring full health. Like if they stay healthy, this is a playoff team this season. And number 10, this is – he has Denver Broncos at number 10. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that one a little bit. Number 11, San Francisco 49ers. Number 12, Philadelphia Eagles. 13, Miami Dolphins. And 14, Arizona Cardinals. And 15, Tennessee Titans. That's your big – that's your big should-be playoff team's bubble. And brother, I, I can't believe Austin Gale – the single biggest hater of Steve Keim, the single biggest hater of Cliff Kingsbury on planet Earth, ranks the Cardinals 14th, doesn't drop them a spot after probably the most embarrassing loss of any team in week one. Lost 44-21 to in the Chiefs. It wasn't that close. Still has them the 14th best team. That's one I think should be a little lower. I'm surprised he has the Eagles only at number 12. Trevor Sigma put the Eagles at number five in his power rankings today on Again, it's just football. If you're not tuning in, you're missing out. But he put him at number five. I don't get on board with that, but I also think they're probably a touch in between 12. Somewhere between five and 12. Bump them up. Give them the 10 spot. At least swap them out with the Denver Broncos, who lost the 10 team on the list, lost to the Seattle Seahawks in a touch of a fluky game, but also a game where I wouldn't say they were outclassing the Seahawks like yeah they should have scored in the at the goal line on you know at least one of those two possessions that they fumbled on but it wasn't as if the Seahawks didn't belong in the same football field and things just bounced the wrong way or it wasn't as if the 49ers game who lost the Bears obviously but had just unplayable conditions at Soldier that are going to cause things to be a little fluky no the the Broncos just they just didn't show up against a team that everyone's you know, picking to be maybe number one overall pick. So I'd move the Broncos down a little bit. I'd move the Eagles up a little bit. And I'd move the Dolphins up a little bit. Number 13, I, I think the Dolphins are a little bit better than that. I, I, I think this defense hasn't missed a beat, and, and the offense is going to be a much different animal than it was last season. Obviously, I'm, the guys have been pumping up them all offseason, so that's probably why. Here's, here's an interesting tier, though, because I feel like his 16 and 17 teams on this list – 1,000% deserve to be bumped up into the above tier that we just talked about. This should be playoff teams. And it's the Indianapolis Colts and the New Orleans Saints. Maybe not necessarily the Colts after tying the Texans, but they, like I, I called the Broncos game not necessarily fluky in losing to the Seahawks. It was fluky that the Colts tied the Texans. They completely outgained them. I think outgained them by over 200 yards. They missed an easy game-winning field goal. Um, yeah, I, I do think that the Colts are still a good team, still a likely playoff, or still in the mix to be a playoff team. Obviously, AFC's loaded. But comes in at number 16 here for Austin Gale of the Ringer. Number 17, New Orleans Saints. I think they bounce back in a big way this week against the Bucs and look like they're legit. The Falcons game... Yes, it took a lot for them to come back to beat the Falcons, but I think there were some encouraging signs from the Saints, especially offensively, in their ability to move the ball down the football field when you know they have to move the ball through the air. When the Falcons knew that was going to be the case, they, that wasn't an option for them last year. They didn't have the receivers to get it done. So I'm encouraged by the Saints. I, I don't think – I think they should be up a tier on this list. But then you have the Dallas Cowboys at 18, which without Dak Prescott, they're in the bottom five, in my opinion. That's too big a gap between him and Cooper Rush to put him up at 18. Cleveland Browns coming in at number 19. 
Las Vegas Raiders at number 20, and New England Patriots at number 21. That is your on-the-bubble tier. And then last tier is here, long-shot hope, playoff hopefuls. And again, Austin, we got to work on these names for next, next week. These are very – these are something a little snazzier, all right? Long-shot playoff hopefuls is not getting it done for me. It's not grabbing my eyes for a headline. Come on. Come on, buddy. He has the Pittsburgh Steelers, which – Apparently, T.J. Watt's injury, not season-ending. Now, he is on IR six weeks, but not complete. So not a complete death knell to that defense. Obviously, still have a ton of talent on that defense. So I would call them a long-shot playoff hopeful. Washington Commanders at number 23. Seattle Seahawks at 24. New York Giants at 25. Carolina Panthers at 26. Jacksonville Jaguars at 27. The Chicago Bears at 28. Yeah, that's that tier is just kind of meh is kind of how I feel about the like there's there's not a quarterback that's done enough to get me super excited yet there are obvious holes up and down these rosters in certain places whether it's you know Steelers your offensive line uh whether it's the commanders your linebackers are trash your whether it's the Seahawks and your secondary now without Jamal Adams for the season um just a lot of issues on those teams to just make it unlikely for any of them to really make a serious run at the playoffs. And then the last year, I am the number one overall pick. I feel like you did some of these two, some of these teams dirty here. Dol- the Detroit Lions in this tier, that's egregious. Number 29 on this list, Detroit Lions. Eric Eager, now f- almost former PFF employee with Austin Gale, would, would be rolling in his PFF grave if he were still that analogy didn't come to fruition there but that that's just too low for the Lions. they they beat they lost the eagles by three and i get they had to come back for it but man i i do have concerns about detroit's defense i think they're talented but shit 455 yards of offense to the eagles in week one they got to bounce back and bounce back quickly from that maybe the eagles just a house offensively but that was not a good showing for them i do love this offensive line though for the lions that's like the easily the best offensive line of anyone. You know, we've said the long shot from 22 on, the long shot playoff hopefuls tier into the I'm the number one pick tier. The Lions have a night and day offensive line from anyone else in this tier in the bottom 10, which is why I think of them higher than the 29th best team in the NFL right now. Atlanta Falcons at 30. We'll see. I mean, they put up a great fight against the Saints. I call. I think I called that game a game that they're going to be happy they lost in eight months, but has to suck right now against a division rival that they they were in control in the fourth quarter. Very curious to see how they look in subsequent weeks, but I think this secondary with AJ Terrell and Casey Hayward can they can give some people problems on that side of the ball, at least passing offenses. I'm not sure they have enough to stop a lot of the better run games around the NFL, but they can shut down some wide receivers. 31, Houston Texans, 32, New York Jets. Yeah, until Zach Wilson comes back and does anything. I, I don't think those are hot takes. Those are probably your favorites for the number one pick right now. I would toss maybe the Bears in there. It, it's weird. Week one was so weird. There, there just weren't a lot of teams that came out and shit the bed in week one, you know? Like, there wasn't, there wasn't like, oh, yeah, that's – that's why they're you know going to get the number one overall pick, which there usually is. Like some team who just comes out and doesn't look like they have it. 
or like often is teams that just haves and have nots in the NFL. I think the parity right now is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty league wide to where I'm not saying like those teams can make a run of the playoffs, but they can beat playoff teams in any given week. I don't think there's outside of the Texans and Jets right now. There's not a lot of teams that I think are really just flatlining in terms of what they're bringing to the table. Those are the power rings though from Austin Gale. Wanted to give him a little shout out, give him a little pub, go and check him out on the ringer. Uh, Support good journalism like that. All right, let's get into the rookie stock report. Talk about some rookies around the NFL who have caught my eye week one. And obviously it's week one. And if you think back to Justin Jefferson's rookie year, he didn't even do shit in week one, right? He didn't even like play. He was getting out snapped by Ola B.C. Johnson. So again, I don't want to say take it with a grain of salt. I don't, I don't think that's how I'd couch any analysis of of rookies it's more just like this is what is happening right now it is not i'm not giving you an outlook on their entire careers i'm just saying this is probably who they're going to be like weeks one two three four like early on in their nfl careers this just like the power rankings exactly it doesn't matter right now kind of doesn't matter well it, it kind of does it matters, but it matters but for like this week like yeah. here and now once we get like to the end of the season it'll be a completely different it matters story, for clicks yeah but I, so stock up in the rookie stock report I kind of just went, as a group here, this rookie cornerback class, I was very impressed by a number of these guys. Not only the first-rounders, who I, I, I don't think anyone looked bad out of the first round. You, you had Sauce Gardner, looked excellent. As advertised, probably just the way to go about it. Like everyone thought he was going to be excellent. Everyone saw the tape against Alabama. Everyone saw him hold his own and dominate you know, the group of five, which Luke Fickle said he doesn't say group of five, but I, I say group of five. Everyone saw that in eight yards in his debut. Two targets, one catch, eight yards. They had him on third downs tracking Mark Andrews. That's how confident they felt about him. And he did. He held up on those reps. It, Sauce was legit, man. That, that was. He had a pass breakup. And he had a pass breakup. Did we score that as a pass breakup? Yeah. Yeah, the one on Mark in Andrews. In the end zone? Yeah. It was kind of like crosser. Nice. And it was in zone. It wasn't even press man, which is all he did in Cincy. It was him falling off his uh, zone, which was, again, not a play we saw him have to do in college that he makes week one in the NFL. So everyone like saw that as perfect fit. Everyone's like, he's going to be dope there. And oh, by the way, yeah, he, he kind of is. Stingley, probably not as impressive. Six and nine targets, 81 yards, pass breakup. But this was the one where it's when he got drafted, everyone's like, I don't know if he's a cover two corner for Levy Smith. I don't know if he's the guy for that scheme. But we also don't know how long Levy Smith's like in the plans as their head coach there, which is why I think they drafted Stingley. Because of their 92 defensive snaps, seven were man coverage calls. Stingley was like the man cover corner in this class. That, that is why you were drafting him. So seven of those. And on those seven, he looked great. He had a crosser against Michael Pittman that could have been like a game. It was towards the end. I think it was in the fourth quarter that would have gotten them like into easy field. I think it was right before the missed field goal. Would have gotten him into easier field goal range. And he made up ground on Pittman quickly. I think that's my biggest takeaway from Stingley is that, man, he went, came out like 4 4 one forty or whatever as pro day on the football field, making up on crossers, digs, when he's a little bit behind so far this preseason and a week one. His gear to get there is special. That guy's top end speed is something else. So that's probably the biggest takeaway from Stingley. Trent McDuffie, I don't think I touched on it on Monday's episode. 
he was electric. It's so sad that he pulled, I guess, pulled hamstring, maybe a little bit more than a pulled hamstring because he's on IR, going to miss until at least week, week six, I believe. 21 snaps wasn't targeted because there wasn't a single opportunity to target him. Now he's going up against, you know, some scrubs for the Cardinals. Not going to sugarcoat it. Like those guys were not good that he was going up against for the majority of those. But he didn't make mistakes. He looked, and I'll, I'll say this I thought McDuffie was a hell of an athlete coming out of Washington, but I didn't think he was the fastest. He looked quick. He looked quicker on tape than he did at Washington to where you could feel really good about that guy when he comes back. Now, hamstring, obviously, going to be limiting him, going to be something to monitor even when he does come back. But that was very impressive. First game, rookie season tape from a guy like that. No, no wonder why he just you know won that job and they haven't even discussed uh, anyone else there on the outside of cornerback. So McDuffie was great. Kyrie Elam, solid in his debut. Three of three catches, 23 yards. He had the lowest grade, I believe, of any of these guys in week one of the first rounders. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as you – know, it was kind of up and down. I, I don't think he played poorly by any means. Um, the grade obviously isn't going to be too flattering because he allowed multiple first downs, You know, no pass breakups, nothing like that. But – He's very good at the line of scrimmage still. Um, and he's only 21 years old. Dude, dude is, was the youngest. Uh, it was either him or, him or Stingley. They were both 20 when they got drafted. They're, they were both young. And see Elam already hanging with dudes at the line of scrimmage and press. An encouraging sign. The other encouraging one there for the Bills, too, Christian Benford. Six-rounder. The Villanova guy. I wish I had more tape on him coming out of Villanova because he was sick when he played Penn State. Very good. But... It's just difficult in that level of competition. I can't, can't believe he wasn't like a senior bowl invite guy, but three of five targets, um, 55 yards, but he had a pass breakup. Uh, just excited to see what he does in the, in the future. Outside of the first round, a number of guys impressed me too. Roger McCreary, one target, one catch, five yards. Solid outing from him, obviously going against the Giants. Stephen Core, he's going to get tested a little bit more uh, throughout his rookie season, but have to get, have to say, you know, check that first box. Martin Emerson, the preseason star for the Browns. Now, obviously, with Greedy Williams out for a while, he's going to be seeing a lot of playing time. Three of five targets, 27 yards. I liked what I saw from him. And then this guy I'm very excited about, Tariq Woolen. Targeted five times. Didn't allow a catch, but he did have two pretty bad penalties. So on his official targets, 0 of 3. Man, he's been so good at the vertical route tree whether it was preseason um, whether it was in week one um, you know going up against the Broncos wide receivers like he his makeup speed obviously is legit he's you know was the fastest um, you know it was the 4-2 guy coming out of UTSA the ball skills are the concern right now you know he was lost lost on that PI I think it was against was it Sutton that got behind him a little bit, lost trying to find that football. And that, that was the knock on him coming out of UTSA. It's like, dude, he he had to switch from offense to defense because he couldn't find the ball, save his life. Um, but I, I am impressed with how quickly he's picked up at the NFL level. Um, his physicality, the size, like it's giving guys problems. And, and he obviously goes to a scheme where he's not asked to do a ton of different things besides kind of play the vertical tree, and he's been so good at it. So – Seahawks look like they might have some in him. Now, he's going to take his lumps. He's going to be up and down as a rookie. It's going to be difficult not to with how little football he's played at the cornerback position. But that's the Seahawks corner right there for as long as, you know, Pete Carroll's in. 
All right, that's that's just stock up though. Rookie corners, a lot of good ones. So fan of this class, and already it's coming to fruition. Stock down though, and this was something I warned in the draft season. Rookie offensive tackles, rough, rough week one. Not everyone's Rashawn Slater, not everyone's Tristan Wirfs. This is this is the more likely outcome. If you're banking on a rookie off tackle to fix your pass protection, more often than not, it's going to look like Iki Aquanu versus Miles Garrett than it is going to look like Rayshon Slater versus Chase Young. You know, Iki, two sacks, two hurries, 17.9 pass blocking grade. Evan Neal, two hurries, 56.2 pass blocking grade. Charles Cross, two sacks, two hurries, 31.7 pass blocking grade. Yeesh. They got baptized. There's a, no bones about it. They were... Tough, tough days for all of them. Um, that's going to happen at the tackle position. Now, obviously, you had some difficult matchups there. Charles Cross, Bradley Chubb is who he was going against. He was going against Miles Garrett. So you could, like, throw that one out. Miles Garrett's going to do that to a lot of guys, established veterans. So can't hate on that too much. It's more about seeing the improvement. I mean, you remember Penny Sewell coming out last year was getting fucking cooked, right? Like, he, he looked like he didn't know what the hell he was doing. He didn't know how, like, he had ever taken a pass set on the right side early on. By the end of the year, it was top, like, five right tackle in the NFL through the past handful of, handful of weeks of 2021. That's what you got to see from these guys. Coming in right away and trying to ask them to block Miles Garrett, it's just not going to happen. Not with what they did in college and not with how technically refined they were coming out. So, Yeah. Stock's still down. I, I will say, though, there were guys who had encouraging signs. I think Tyler Smith is one of them, especially considering the Dallas Cowboys offensive tackle, especially considering he did not even play uh, left tackle in the preseason. was left guard, obviously, and then gets kicked out the left tackle because of Tyron Smith injury. And I think Abe Lucas on the right side for the Seahawks, also very encouraged by what I saw from him in week one. Those two guys were thought of as, like, projects. I mean, like, there was no guy in this class who was like, yeah, that guy's starting week one for sure. That just that was not this tackle class. There, there's so few of those guys that exist kind of across NFL history. But Smith and Lucas, especially because of the offenses they came from, because of just their technique on tape, were like, eh, give them a minute. But I like what I saw from both. So there's a stock report for this week. Um, let's get into a bit a little bet recap here. As Quinn alluded to, Dr. Odds did not come to play in week one. Dr. Odds went, what do you go, 0 for 3, I believe. I, on the other hand, went 3 for 6. Respectable 50%. Hitting on my, so I, I, I touted the G Jonathan Taylor over, I believe it was 92 and a half rushing yards and over 20 carries. Hit both. The Trevor Lawrence under 5, 0.5 interceptions one was a fucking sweat and I hated it. Because at the end of the game, he heaves one up on a third and 11. And I'm just like, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, that's not going to end well. It was one of those where he's rolling left, and he tries to throw it as hard as he can down the field. Unless you see a guy standing completely alone, that's nine times out of ten getting picked off. Lo and behold, it did. So that one was a crush, pretty crushing blow. Mahomes over two and a half passing touchdowns hit, I think, like three minutes into the second quarter, which is always a fun one. The under in New England, Miami, 46 and a half, hit that one as well. And that took the L's on the Panthers, minus one and a half versus the Browns, the Packers, minus one and a half versus the Vikings. We don't have to rehash. <laughs> we don't have to rehash that. That one we could just let sit. Um, for this week, though, 
again, just got the Eric news here earlier this week, so I didn't get a chance to flesh out a full-on betting segment for you guys, so I'll just give my thoughts. I do the weekly prop mismatches on pff.com, on the PFF app, which go check out. I do those every week. Some of the ones I like a lot from that prop mismatches is Trey Lance over 202 passing yards this week against the Seattle Seahawks. 202 yards. If you can't pass for over 202 yards against the Seattle Seahawks, who just went, who just gave up 340 to Russell Wilson when Russ had like a 52.3 grade in that game. Excuse me, 57.6. But he went for 340 yards. Because this defense, the secondaries, they're without, they're, they were the 30th ranked secondary in the preseason. And that was assuming Trey Brown and Jamal Adams were healthy. They are both now not healthy. They are not playing this upcoming week. You have a backup secondary with your best corner being a rookie in Tariq Woolen going against fucking Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle. If you can't go for 202 passing yards over that, Trey Lance, it's over. So that's one of my, that's probably my favorite. That's my two. It's also 2022. Most quarterbacks can like fart and end up with 200 yards. Exactly. Finagle. Like that's just, that's how it is. Yeah. You know? And if you, if they lose too, you're going to be slinging it at the end. And so, yeah. So I like that. There's that one. That's my two unit bet of the week. I like Alvin Kamara's under 26 and a half receiving yards. Since, since Jameis Winston took over, he's gone three over that prop on three of his eight games. Those came against. Some bad linebacking course, too. I, I do not think this line you want to attack this linebacking core in the screen game. Levante David, Devin White, that's like what they shut down. So I do not anticipate Alvin Kamara going over 26 and a half receiving yards. And Jameis Winston's not like he throws down the football field. He's not checked down Drew Brees. He's not the, the short passing game is not in his DNA. So I like that one. And I also like Elijah Moore under 50 and a half. I just think that so Jets. Facing the Browns, one, Brown secondary is very legit. And they have, like, quick, fast corners. Newsom was a 4-3 guy. Denzel Ward was a 4-3 guy that can match up with Elijah Moore's speed. And I think it's going to be a game script that's going to be just running the football. I mean, they passed damn near 60 times last week, the Jets did. And Elijah Moore still didn't go over that prop. Because you got a backup quarterback. you got Joe Flacco. So I, I, I do think that with this secondary, with the fact that it's probably going to be a low-scoring, run-heavy game, I like the under for Elijah Moore there as well. I got the Bengals at seven, minus seven against the Cowboys when that one released. That one's probably going to climb up. I, I mean, Cooper Rush against this Bengals defense, that, that, that to me is still mispriced. Seven and a half, I, I would bet that one all the way up to like nine and a half. That, that's just, that screens blowout. I get that's in Dallas, but that one screens blowout. And then my last bet of the weekend, Packers-Bears. Under 41 and a half. I saw these teams play offense last week. You can't convince me that game's going to go over 41.5 points. I, I, I think the Packers' busts in coverage in week one were, I mean, like that's why they gave up the points they did. I, I don't think they played poorly defensively. It was just like three lapses in coverage against the best, like the top three receiver in the NFL. Bears have nothing of the sort. The Bears do not have that. So I'm going under 41.5. Sunday Night Football. We'll be watching. Tuned in. Those are the bets of the weekend. Let's get into some segments, though. Talking PVOOs here. Positive Vibes Online Only. My favorite segment every week, and it lets me vent. And we had 
my favorite PVOO to date. Like one, a tweet that's so bad that it's good. That that it actually, I'm, I'm like, I like made me laugh how bad this tweet was. And it comes from Michael Lombardi. Or just like, how inaccurate. It's just, okay, let's, let's get into it. Michael Lombardi tweeted this. I had no stake in the game, but last night's decisions kept me sleepless. In three games the past weekend, coaches turned down an easy three points and failed to score a touchdown. Naturally, they all lost in a close game. Had they kicked, they won. Jack, meaning Jacksonville, Indy, and Denver. Whew. And, and he's referring to last night's game in which, which was Monday night, which the Denver Broncos literally settled for a kick. Um, instead of going for it, and lost. So that's point one. Point two, Jacksonville lost by six points. <laughs> the score was 28-22. to 22. So his point of had they kicked, they won. Had they kicked, it's 28-25. to 25. They were not in field goal range when Trevor Lawrence threw an interception. They were not even close. So that one, an interesting take. Uh, Indy had actually, they kicked, and they missed. They, they missed a game-winning field goal with just over a minute remaining that wins them that game. So, yeah, they went for fourth and didn't make it earlier, but, like, they kicked and, and still lost again. And then Denver, obviously, a f I feel like a fumble is as likely as a miss, right? Like, is a fumble as – like, if, if Melvin Gordon doesn't fumble that one, he's in. He's literally – was an inch and a half away when he fumbled and put his hands over the goal line without the ball in it. Like, a fumble and the Travis Etienne drop on those fourth downs are, to me, as likely as a kicker just botched one. It's, it's a very, you know, a 2-3% chance in those scenarios with how easy those were. So, yeah, I, I, I thought that one was... And then the kind of icing on the top of this is that the Dolphins went for it on fourth and seven with 18 seconds left in the first half against Bill Belichick, scored a touchdown from like 40 yards out. Was the deciding was like a deciding factor in that game. Failed to mention that from over the weekend. Have you ever actually lost sleep over a football game? Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Really? Oh, yeah. I don't wow. know if it's ever been that bad. Um, Packers at its championship game 2007. You, you literally did not sleep that night. Yeah. Okay. 2014. Maybe I'm just not game. enough of a football guy. Oh, dude. I, I st that though. I replay those games in my head. Bad. I, I, I don't I sleep don't well to them. begin with though. Like I, the you know? Bengals Super Bowl is on TV like all the time. Still mm -hmm. haven't watched it. I just, I'm just not going to acknowledge it. Just going to kind of refuse that it even happened. Yeah. See, I take the opposite approach and it's just, it just, the wheels keep spinning the entire time that it's going on. I remember, okay, here's a good story from my, I may have told this on the pod, but after the 49ers game, so I went, my parents have a live up in Green Bay. Uh, we went back after uh, to my parents, obviously. My brother, my mom said she went into the basement. So after the Packers 49ers playoff game, Packers lost. She went in the basement at like 4 a.m. because she heard something downstairs. My brother was just drinking Miller Lights alone in the laundry room and it was completely dark and she's like what are you doing and he's like i'm just thinking about the game 
<laughs> so it runs in the family. Yeah, but at a certain point, you don't just like, uh, you know, I've had like 17 of these. Like, I'm just going to shut it down. I do. I mean, that, like, at that's some point. So you do. You, so you, you actually did sleep. But I, but I, I lose some sleep over it. He lost more sleep than I did. He was taking it on the chin that day. Also, what a crazy abbreviation for Jacksonville. Jack. Just Jack. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I haven't either. I kind of like it. Jack City. Um, all right. Next one up on this list. Actually, we, we got to talk because Albert Breer actually quote tweeted it with like agreeing with Michael Lombardi here. And he said, I remember taking a coaching football class in t- with Jim Trestle in 2001. And it was the first time I had heard the old adage, end every series with a kick. Sounds conservative, but it's actually really not. It's logical. Hmm. And then someone said, uh, did you watch the Giants game? They literally didn't and won the game because of it. Um, but also, uh, Luke Fickle has refuted that theory himself. He said, I had to unlearn that philosophy because he said it was dated. <laughs> it was a dated philosophy to end every series of the kick. It just is. Um, yeah. So it, it's also like, yeah, extra points. I, I don't know. There's a lot to break down there, though. You guys get the point. I would like to move on. All right, let's get to the next tweet here from Ted Wynn, former he was I think we had him on in the tailgate days or maybe the two for one drafts days. Ted Wynn of the Athletic. He had been on the podcast before, so friend of the pod. And this take was just I don't I don't understand this take. So Dominique Foxworth tweets if Jalen Hurts doesn't play well this year, the Eagles will be looking to do what will the wait, play this year? The Eagles will be looking to do what the Rams, Bucks, Broncos, and Colts have done. Which QB can they get? Ted Wen quote tweets it with this. If they are a middling QB, which would be disappointing, but not bad enough to get to a top pick, they should go get Tyler Huntley. They should replace a middling QB in Jalen Hurts with an even more middling QB in Tyler Huntley. You don't like Tyler Huntley? Not as my starting quarterback. <laughs> I liked him as a draft prospect that shouldn't have gone undrafted, not a guy who I want as the future of my franchise that that one yeah i don't know that, that was that was an interesting he's one. a good backup yeah he's a good backup i mean like yeah sure you should get tyler huntley but like not to replace jalen hurts they're they're like they're very similar you know they're like the spider-man meme um that was a weird take uh all right next one up here oh i hate to do this colin cowherd because now my show is basically Colin Coward's show. But he tweeted this. The Lions may want to start biting kneecaps or something. The lowest effort kneecap joke to date. Just literally years after the boat of when kneecap jokes were hot in the streets. That, that's not your best, Colin. And I think your likes reflected that. 676 likes. You don't, he has 1.6 million followers. If he tweets out a fart noise, it gets 500 likes. And that's approximately how many likes he got in that one. He tweeted, he quote tweeted the end of the the Broncos game and said, I just can't get over this ending. And it got almost 3,000 likes. That's how people, how many, how much people disdain your late attempt at a kneecap joke. 
And he's a big got, time fun to watch guy. He is. He tweets out fun to watch a lot. He, that he's, and um, videos where he's just like in his on his patio, just like smoking, smoking. cigars. So if you're gonna go, if you're gonna be is. Colin Coward, you need to start smoking <laughs> cigars. And you need to touch your mic too. You ever notice that he's like constantly? He like always moving adjusts. His, yeah, you don't mm. touch your mic enough to be Not Colin enough. Coward. Not enough. That's why he's the king. But he fuels. He could fuel his own savior likes and fun to watch segment. He could. He's the king. That's why he's the king. Uh, last one on this list here. And if you are a Talking Ball movie club member, which you should be, if you're listening right now, you are. And you watched American Underdog, you'll love this Mike Martz quote about Trey Lance and Justin Fields. Can we play it? Yep. Right on the clip. I know this. He can only go up. He can only get better because you can't get any worse than what he did today. I'm just shocked. shocked shocked at the Bears. Sorry about that. I mean, they took this quarterback, they went up and they spent a lot to get him, and he was, he was, less than remarkable would be the kindest thing that you could say about him. I don't know if I've ever seen such a bad performance by a quarterback in his opening performance of the season. Like, he was just completely awful. He really deflated the football team with his performance. They just, you know, when you get a quarterback, they can't do anything at all. And defensively, you shut him out basically for a half. You kind of lose hope. <laughs> you know, right now they're a team without hope. I want their, I want their eyeballs. Yeah, I've never seen anything about this kid that was it, it, encouraging at all. He really has to plan himself to make a good throw. Uh, he's not a quick decision guy. Every shot in the rear about him being a, a mobile guy making plays with his feet. He looked like a fullback stumbling around trying to run the ball to me. I mean, he's not Lamar. <laughs> you know, so. I don't know what he is. He, he's not particularly a good guy running the, with the football. And based on what I saw today, I mean, he, he missed two guys completely by themselves. Uh, I know it was in the rain, but you know, quarterbacks do that. You, you make those throws. Um, I know this, he can only go up. He can only get better because you can't get any worse than what he did today. Uh, I've never liked him. I still don't like him. Um, I don't know. I'd like to know what he does so well because he, he's not a great passer, doesn't have good skills, takes him a long time to set himself and throw the football, misses easy throws, and he's not particularly a good runner other than that. He's a hell of a player. Why does Mike Martz, the supposed I, – I, I love that clip. That's one of my favorite clips of all time. He honestly. got personal at the end. Yeah. It's he, supposed, you know, offensive genius, quarterback whisperer, guru – he sounds like a middle schooler describing quarterbacks. Just He can't play. He can't throw. He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, it sounds like a middle school debate that he's having. He didn't give, like, the, the insight there or, like, him describing, like, why someone's bad sounded like me when I was 12 trying to tell you why the Bears were bad at football. It was like, they just, they just can't play. They stink. They made him kind of look like a dick in uh, they did. American Underdog, which, like, I thought they were exaggerating. And, and we kind of grilled him for it. But, yeah, when he comes out and he says, I don't like him, I never liked him about Trey Lance. Like I said, like that sounded almost personal. If I saw him in the street, it would, I'd throw hands is what he basically was going to say about Trey Lance. He would beat Trey Lance's ass is what he wanted to say. But he couldn't. No, that was also wild. Um, and it was fucking pouring rain. Is the like uh, – that, that, that clip is just, I, I don't know. I hope Mike Martz keeps bringing the heat every week because we'll have to make a segment for him. 
Um, hopefully we can get him on. Actually, we have a relationship with the 33rd team. We could probably, we could probably get Martz in the fold here. I'm not sure it would go great, but it would at least be entertaining. I'm going to actually reach out. We're going to get Mike Martz in the While you're at it, uh, can I make a request for another 33rd team analyst? Oh, yeah. Who? Coach Lewis. Marvin Lewis. Marv? Yeah. He's with the 33rd team now. I, I haven't seen any of his work, but I saw like the tweet when they announced it. Yeah. He's part of the 33rd team. Is he still? No, he, he's with, uh, or he was with. He was with Arizona, Arizona State. State. I'm assuming he's yeah. still doing that. Okay. He's like a special assistant yeah. or whatever, which means I think it's like I'll just hang out in Tempe and draw up some pro style blitzes yeah. and I, I'll be semi retired, which is probably an awesome gig. Get Good Marvin for Lewis yeah. and Mike Martz. I'm I'm reaching out right now. If you haven't heard by now, Underdog Fantasy is the best and easiest place to play fantasy football this summer. We've all been there in fantasy football leagues. It's Sunday morning and you're digging through news reports trying to figure out whether to start your stud wide receiver that tweaked his hammy or you have a player on your team that hasn't been getting in the end zone. And then one week, he suddenly goes off for 30 points on your bench. With Underdog Fantasy, all the stress of who to start each week is lifted off your shoulders because it's best ball format. Draft your teams before the season starts and get the best score in your lineup each week. Right now, you can draft an Underdog's Best Ball Mania 3 tournament to take your shot at $10 million in total prizes. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. That's right, $100 in free money. Also, if you play 10 of those 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So basically, you're paying less than what you would pay at PFF.com. And it's a little, little cheat code there for you. Underdog drafts close before NFL kickoff. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft in your best ball mania team today. Get ready for the NFL Week 1 action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. And now, everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. Get up 7, you win. Bet on any NFL team of your choice, and if your team leads by 7 points at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at one 800 889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPPANY or text HOPPANY 467-369. One per customer. Minimum $5 positive wager. $200 issued as $825 free bets. All right, let's get to the takes of the week. You guys sent in a number of takes this week. We got some good ones. I think we got one that's going to get a high score here. But let's start with uh, whichever, whichever one you got queued up first here. This first one is from Dan. Hey, Mike. This is Dan from Ohio. I got a hot take. Thursday night football is supremely superior to Monday night football. The reasons are obvious. Thursday night, nice prelude to the weekend. An excuse to go out, go to a bar, get some drinks, get some wings. Friday morning, everybody's lagging. It doesn't matter. You come into the office a little hungover. No one bats an eye. Monday night, it's like, dude, we just had all of Saturday college football, all of Sunday, 
I'm ready to move on, okay? I want to see my fantasy scores done. I want to close out my bets. I have to work in the morning. I don't want to drink even though I'm tempted to. It's just horrible. Quality of games aside, Thursday night, superior format. I I don't know if that's a hot take. I, honestly, judging by we had kind of this conversation on it's just football earlier, I, I think it kind of is. There are people out there who are Thursday night football haters. There is a staunch vocal group of people against Thursday night football. Not me, though. I love it. Thursday night football is as good as it gets. Like going to a Thursday night football game is my favorite. Watching a Thursday night football game, I don't miss them. I will miss some Mondays or like some halves of Mondays because I got to work. But by the end of the Thursday, like I don't, I don't have to work Thursday nights. Like if I have to work Thursday nights, that's the problem. So this one's getting a high score for me. What would you say before you score? What would you say are like the two sort of not necessarily like your opinion, but sort of like the public perception? Like what are the two worst time slots? Because I, I kind of have an opinion about this, and it's, it's it plays into one of my later questions. I, people don't like. I think pe- Thursday night football does get hated on. Like the that's most. what I'm saying. Thursday night football, I think, is generates the most hate. Yeah, which I don't agree with either. Yeah. But a lot of people, if you just like log on Twitter right now, uh-huh. a lot of Chiefs and um, Chargers fans are probably going to be like, "Oh, why the fuck do we Short have to play week. on Thursday night?" Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think like the 4 p.m. gets hated on too. Yep. That was my other one, too, yeah. which, again, I like 4 p.m. kickoffs. I yeah. know I'm in the minority there, but a lot of people don't like those. Yeah, Dan from Ohio brought it, though. I love everything about that take. Honestly, not a lot. He messed up there. It's going to get an elite grade for me. It's going to get a 92.3 overall grade, Dan from Ohio. And also, Dan, if you're in town for the Thursday night football, Bengals, Dolphins game, I'll buy you a beer because that take was so good. And you're in Ohio, so I'm not sure how far away. You can be very far away in Ohio, which I didn't realize until I moved here. You can be like five hours away from someone. And still live in, both live in Ohio, which it's a bigger state than I thought initially. All right, let's get to the other take. Yep, this other is from Neil. Right Shout out, Neil. Hey, Mike, I've got a take about young quarterbacks. So PFF has notoriously been very aggressive at getting the quarterback. It's the most important position in the game. And, you know, you guys have advocated for things in the past that other people wouldn't have. I believe some members advocated for the Washington Commanders to take Tua Tagovailoa at two instead of Chase Young the year after they drafted Dwayne Haskins in the first round. Now, we've seen quarterbacks being put in crappy situations. I think that NFL teams should be more prepared for when they're going to draft a rookie quarterback. They should know maybe years in advance or months in advance if they might be drafting one and they should make sure that they have a really good, or at least a decent roster, so that QB is not going to get killed. And if they don't, then maybe they should bypass even someone who's thought, thought of as a highly touted prospect. What do you think? So, I think there are points of that I agree with, in that if you have a shit roster, or I guess the better way to put this is, if you knowing where you are, as a roster is probably one of the most important aspects of roster building. So if you know, I guess I'll give the bears in 2021 as an example, when you know, you're going to suck that upcoming year, when you know you're depleting in talent, when you know you're going into a bad cap situation, don't mortgage the farm for a quarterback basically, because it's going to be, as we've seen, very difficult to build anything around Justin Fields. When you already have a bad roster, when you have a bad cap situation, and you're not picking at the top of the draft when you're having to trade up to do so. Then I say yes. Like, don't mortgage 
a lot of your future when you have nothing on your roster to go get a quarterback. I can agree with that. But if you're like sitting at number one and Trevor Lawrence staring in the face, I don't care that your roster stinks as the Jacksonville Jaguars was. Like I would not have traded that away for picks to try to build this roster to then get the quarterback. No, you take the quarterback because of what we say about advocating for drafting another guy. It makes a quarterback on the rookie deal building out the rest of that roster a lot easier. And, it, and we'll see it with the Bears next year, truthfully. They kind of took their lumps because they had a transitional year. They had a GM who was trying to save his job, making bad long-term financial decisions. They let him have that draft, and they're paying for it this year with what they have to do. That's going to change next year. They have the most cap space of any team in the NFL at this very moment for the 2023 season. So, yeah, it sucks right now for Justin Fields, but next year it could be a lot better. And that's how quickly it can turn when you're not paying your quarterback $40 million a year, when he's making you know under $10 million a year. So that extra $30 million in cap space that – the Chiefs don't have, that the Bills don't have, that the Packers don't have because they're paying their quarterback all that money, you now can use to make three or four starters, add three or four starters in free agency with that money. So I will give this take. There are, again, there are some aspects I agree with, but you're not passing on a guy who's there. You're at the top of the draft. Franchise quarterback's there for you. You're not passing because you have a bad roster, in my opinion. So I'll go 63.4. Some, some positive takeaways, but on the whole, I, I think I just would say you're not passing. It's more so I'm not trading up. I'm not mortgaging more future draft capital. I'm not making the move the 49ers did if I don't think I have a good roster at the moment. So there you have it. There's your takes of the week. Make sure to send those in. Link it will be below in either the YouTube, Spotify, whatever. The SpeakPipe link. Get your guys' takes here. Yep. I'll be grading them. SpeakPipe.com slash Talking ball. Talking ball. I almost said tailgate. Yeah. I, I, but it's very easy. I will put it in the description, but it's very easy. That was a Russell Speak Wilson-esque. Yeah. Catch yourself. Yeah. Not a go Hawks. It's yep. go, go Broncos. Um, all right. Last segment here before we get to the interviews with South Carolina head coach Shane Beamer and Illinois head coach Brett Bielema. Let's talk a little would you rather. Why don't you kick it off first here? Yeah. When? So uh, Thursday night football, obviously Chiefs Chargers. Um, Bengals are playing the Cowboys this weekend. Both have um, – I guess you can call them sort of jacks of all trades on defense. Derwin James, Micah Parsons, you know, can kind of – could play, like, multiple different yeah. positions on defense, at, like a Pro Bowl-type level. Um, so if you're starting a defense, if you're building a defense, who would you rather start with, Derwin James or Micah Parsons? Oh, that's tough. I'm just going to assume, like, health, obviously, because the, the, Derwin's yeah. had the it, injury. It, in in – the contract, don't worry yeah. about that. Health and contracts yeah. out the window. Just yeah, because Derwin just signed that big deal, yes, and yes, Parsons yes. he'll get one eventually. Yeah. But just just objectively, who would you rather? I guess it just kind of goes oh, back to man. you know PFF or your company man coverage oh. versus pass rush. I fuck Parsons is so good. He's he's so insane. I'm going Parsons because. Like, he was their defensive turnaround last year. Everyone said Dan Quinn. Everyone said, you know, Trayvon Diggs. It was Parsons. Parsons versus below-average tackles in the NFL is as big a mismatch as, like, a T.J. Watt, as, a, as any edge rusher that exists. He is insane when he is, has that athletic advantage on guys because he is such a freak. Because no one, like, no tackle has seen that combination that he has a guy running in the four threes who can stop start as quickly as he can and has his kind of power. Like, like the elite guys can, I think, handle him to a degree. And he, he def, definitely has strong 
on off splits versus like good tackles versus bad tackles. Like it's night and day how productive he is. But then you just play him off ball and he makes the dude shuts down any underneath passing game, dump offs to running backs. He is a hell of a tackler. Yeah, I'm going Micah Parsons. I love Derwin. I think if I had Derwin, I would honestly just have him shadow opponent's top receivers. That's what I was going to say. If you pick Derwin or just like say, hey, you're our starting outside corner. Yeah. And that's just like, that's what you're going to play. Because I think he could do that at like a top 10 type I think so too. But I I just think Micah Parsons is the ultimate mismatch. He's just, he's a different animal than what we've seen at the linebacker position. So I'll leave Micah Parsons, but it's tough. It's tough. I actually have a Cowboys scene one too. And this is more, this is more like roster. How good do you think the Cowboys are? Would you rather have Cooper Cush, Cup, yikes, Cooper Rush, I almost say Cooper Cup, start for the six to eight games that Dak is reportedly going to be out or have him just start the next 17, 16, excuse me? I Basically mean, saying, yeah, just punting on the season. Punting on the season. Um, I mean, I think like just like gut answer, like 16, because it's like, right, you, you, you'll probably have the number one overall pick. But I also do think like if you are Jerry Jones and you are the Cowboys and you are as big a spectacle as that is, like that's a like that'd be a tough sell. You yeah. know what I mean? Basically just saying like, hey, we're the Dallas Cowboys and we're going to like punt on this season. Yeah. Like the, the backlash that yeah. would come from that. Can't do it. So if I, yeah, I mean, I guess if, if I was Jerry Jones, I guess if I owned the Cowboys, I'm caving to peer pressure. I'd say six to eight and just be like, yeah, we'll try to salvage the season. Cause like at that point, like shit, if you're oh and eight and Dak does come back, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you, you could still theoretically wind up with a top five pick, you know, and it's not yeah. like you're going to necessarily have to draft Bryce Young. You know, because mm-hmm. you're you're rolling with Dak anyway, so you could still probably get a blue chip talent and not have to deal with the whole like you know oh you got, like when the the Sixers tanked mm-hmm. and they got fucking flamed for it. You know, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah, it's basically a question of is six to eight games of Cooper Rush going to tank your season already? Uh, too much? Is it salvageable after that? Yes. No, I it's not it salvageable. It and I agree. I think is. I don't think it is. So at that point, I would want sixteen. I would want sixteen. So that's where I think. Well, like it, it eight, if he's out eight games too, and say you're zero and eight, I mean at that point your roster is like a lot of those guys have probably packed it in. They mailed it in. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm trying not to get hurt. And Mike McCarthy's mailed. We're in. getting out of here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mailed in his resignation. He'll be gone. All right. Next one up. Unit. Yeah. So still sticking with Thursday night here. Thursday night theme. Um, Chargers D line. Or Bills D line. So are you going with Ooh, basically okay. same thing as like the Bengals Dolphins yeah. the first one we did? Are you going elite? with the stars and scratch? Yeah, two or elite guys or one star and then just a bunch of solid. What would you rather have? So I, I guess if injuries were a factor, like injuries in the injury risk, you know, Khalil Mack got hurt last year. Joey Bosa's had um, injuries over the course of his career. I'd be a little more worried about that with the Chargers. But if we're talking full-strength D-lines, give me the elite guys. Give me the two guys who are game changers. Because I think that raises kind of the level of everybody. And you just no one has no one has two elite tackles to deal with that. It just you have to chip. You have to do things schematically that you wouldn't have to do otherwise. Whereas the Bills D-line, 
I'm not sure there's one guy you got chip. You know, there's not one guy where I'm like, he's definitely going to lose his matchup or he's definitely going to win his matchup should we leave him one-on-one. I don't, I don't, Vaughn, I guess, falls into that category. Yeah, he probably still does. Uh, maybe I'm hating too much on Vaughn. Okay, Vaughn falls in that category. That one's, ah, fuck. Okay, give me the, I'm going, this one's really tough. I don't know. I, my wheels are spinning too fast in my head right now for how much I shouldn't be talking this one through live. I'm sticking with the Chargers. Give me the Chargers. Who are you going? I'll go Bills just to disagree, just to have some discourse. I do think the depth is a little more important along the defensive line, Mm -hmm. just because like you have to be able to rotate a lot of those guys. Because like a lot of those guys, I mean, if you're that big, you can't. You know, your edge rushers can, but like DT is definitely no. Yeah, you got to have bodies to throw out there because a lot of those guys can't play Mm -hmm. 50, 60 snaps a game. So I'll, I'll just I'll take the depth if for nothing more than that reason. But I do agree with what you said. Like if you have two, if you have Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa, that changes what you can do defensively. Yeah. Not like, I mean, how many teams could say that they can even do something even similar to that? You know what I mean? Like how many offense? Like if you're an offensive coordinator, how many teams like the Chargers would you have to prepare for? Right? You don't. You'd almost yeah. have to have like a unique game plan for them just because of those exactly. two. You know. Exactly. All right. My next one's a unit. I'm cheating on this one. Would you rather have the Chiefs quarterbacks or the Chargers quarterbacks for the next decade? Uh, I just pulled up the depth chart right here because <laughs> I got to look at the backups. Got it. Got it. Just in case. I guess. You know what? I'm going to go with the Chargers because they got. I think Chase Daniel has more in the tank. Okay. And uh, then Chad Henney does. That's a punt punt answer. There. That is a punt answer. Uh, I'm going to go. This one's really tough because Herbert, like, he's fucking good. I mean, it's very, you're really splitting hairs. I'm going to go Chiefs, though. Let me go the Chiefs quarterback room. There's just, like, no chance of Mahomes falling off. I mean, there's no chance of Herbert falling off either. But you Mahomes wouldn't want to hang out that. with uh, Chase Daniel? Mahomes oh, gives you that just seems pretty another cool. level of outside-the-pocket playmaking that. I think he just brings a little. I don't, even, I don't want to like. I don't want to say anything bad about her. Like, there's nothing bad to say about Herbert. It's just I think Mahomes has another element of playmaking that Herbert doesn't possess. That I'll take. Yeah. No, he's the best quarterback in the NFL. That's yeah. I guess. I, well, Aaron and he Rogers, it, but. and he will be for the foreseeable future. It's still Aaron Rodgers. Well, Aaron Rodgers is going to retire and yeah, and then do a walkabout or something here. All right. In the near future. What's your last one here? Uh, last one. So I, I kind of asked, or I kind of teased it earlier. Uh, Thursday night football and Sunday 4 p.m. seem to be the like the two time slots that get shit on the most. I don't personally agree with that, but like the public perception seems to suggest that. Mm-hmm. So, would you rather your team play on Thursday night or Sunday at 4 p.m.? Which I again, you kind of already answered this, but I like Thursday night. It. I mean, for entertainment wise, Thursday night. There's always the oh, more injuries happen on Thursday night. So, like, probably realistically for the. W- betterment of the franchise you would probably want sunday at four but entertainment wise thursday night dude and then it like frees up your weekend you get you get them out the way thursday night it's like a bye week without an actual bye and, and which yeah, is cool to like, which is know, nice. especially as you get older you get to care nice. more about the the bets i've made my fantasy team get to chill more not stressing the outcome outcomes already done and especially if it's like i hate the 4 p.m slot where 
I have to sit through kind of on edge all the 1 p.m. games until the 4 p.m. Um, yeah, and, and then and then you're still missing the 4 p.m. slot. Like you're still if you're focused on your team, you're missing other teams. There's like three other games going on that you're not really getting to pay attention to. So yeah, give me the Thursday night football slot. All right, my last one: tailgate food, burgers or brats, or I guess you can throw dogs, whatever whatever penis shaped item you want to throw on a bun. Yeah, th- no, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. This is the easiest question. I think this is the easiest would you rather ever. It's burgers. Really? Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I like brats. I like hot dogs. Yeah. I like Italian sausage, kielbasa, mm-hmm. whatever, penis shape yeah. you, you went through on Fal- that. Like, Fal- I, I don't know. Just like uh, a, a good cheeseburger is just... I, I, I really don't feel like I have to explain this too yeah, much. No. I, no I, burgers are more versatile. Mm-hmm. I think they're easier to cook. Uh, maybe not easier to cook, but they're, they're both easy. That's why it's, yeah. that's why they're hard but to I know I just, I, I, I like burgers. I think burgers are far superior to dogs. Let me just say, personally. you can't go wrong, but no, I, yeah, I, like a, I said, no disrespect to, to hot dogs. Like there's a bunch of hot mm-hmm. dogs listening, but yeah, I just, it's burgers. Growing up in Wisconsin, I, I got to say brats, dude. Bra- yeah. brats are, I, I knew you were going to go that yeah, route. Go brats. I, it might be a regional thing. It probably is. Um, but, Nothing better. And the good thing about brats is that you can just slam them. Like if you have two burgers, you feel like shit. Four brats is like a, a yeah. snack. I will say I have come to appreciate like brats, mm-hmm. like a, a good brat with like uh, some good sauerkraut on top of it. That isn't something that I, that I would have eaten when I was younger, like as a kid. But now I like that's especially during the summer. It's like a very enjoyable summer meal. Either, either. Summer, summer meal with a beer. I said yes, meal. Meal. Uh, you're thinking beer. Um, but yeah, a brat with either onions and mustard or a brat with just sauerkraut and some maybe some stadium sauce. Always hot. Yeah, like Always a good, good bun. Like a, not, not quite like a full baguette, yes, but yeah. like the, the thicker, like you, nice quality. Yeah. No, you don't buy the, good. the thin paper white ones. Those are poop. All right. That's... Uh, would you rather for this week? Just a reminder, movie club next Thursday, Concussion, with starring Will Smith. Um, it will be on Hulu or Amazon Prime if you have a subscription to either for free, I believe. Haven't watched it yet. We'll be checking it out over the weekend. Fun fact, NFL reduced concussions this preseason by over 50% with those helmet pad things. So good on you, NFL, for that. Um, we'll get to check out why in the movie this week. So we'll talk about that next Thursday. Now... Let's get to interviews with Shane Beamer, South Carolina head coach, and Brett Bielema, Illinois head coach. It is my pleasure to be joined now by South Carolina head football coach and TikTok star, Shane Beamer. Let's start right there, Shane. What's the genesis? How did that video come about? Uh, Good question. Obviously, we got a great creative and social media team here at Carolina, and Justin King, who heads that up for us, said I got an idea. And uh, let me run something by you. And he's so talented. I don't really have to get a whole lot of uh, explanation from him. He just kind of tells me what he needs me to do, and I do it because I know he's going to be spot on. So told me about it and told me what he needed me to do. And went in there and knocked it out in about five minutes and and, um, and obviously was very successful. How, how weird is that as a head football coach in, in today's landscape that you almost have to be a marketer? You have to be in the marketing business to sell yourself to these kids now. Yeah, it's certainly different. You know, and I, I think that's always kind of been the case in, in recruiting. I mean, mm-hmm. um, 
you, you want to differentiate yourselves. You want to give high school prospects a, a glimpse into what you're about as a person and what your program is about. And, and that's always been the case. And certainly in today's time, you have more avenues to be able to do that with social media and different forms of communication and all that as well. So we try and take advantage of all those avenues and, and uh, you know, continue to showcase what we're about as a program. So growing up, obviously, you had as much experience as anyone in how to coach uh, from your father, Frank Beamer, head football coach of Virginia Tech for all those years. How much different was his job description and his lifestyle as a head coach back then versus what it is now for you with NILs, transfers, and like I said, all these marketing things that you have to do? Yeah, so much different. Um, you know, I mean, there was there's so much um, that he, I mean, his during his time, whether it be the head coach of Virginia Tech or the head coach of Murray State, there were a lot of things that he had to do you know, and it was still a, dem a demanding job with a lot of work, but you're exactly right. There's so many things now that, um, that, that I have to do as the head coach and get to do in, in a lot of ways too, but you know, he didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Instagram as a means to communicate with fans and, and recruits and all the other different forms of social media transfer portal. Wasn't what it is right now. Uh, name, image, and likeness didn't exist. I mean, there's just so many things that um, are, are different, you know, and he would have adapted as a head coach, mm -hmm. just like any, you know, successful coach is, you adapt to the surroundings around you. And he would have done that, but it's certainly a different time and, and things that he probably never uh, uh, could have imagined doing as a head coach we're doing now. Do you coach differently now? You've been doing this 20 years. Do you coach differently knowing that, you know, if you piss the wrong kid off, he could be out the building tomorrow and that's another program? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, not really. You know, to me, you better be genuine. You better be real. You kind of be be who, who you are. And we certainly haven't had to, I haven't and our staff hasn't. I don't feel like we've had to, to change, um, you know, to me, we're all, we're going to be what you see is what you get with us and you're going to see that in recruiting and, and um do we coach you really really hard yes are we really demanding yes is this, are, are we going to hold you accountable for every little thing on and off the field yes are you going to work really really hard here yes but it's also our players would tell you this they know that our coaching staff and the people here in this program it's a bunch of people that care about you and um, treat you as with respect um, and, as, and as people first. And to me, if you do that, that's the kind of program that you, you, you wanna have and it's a program that people wanna be a part of. I don't sit around each day saying, well, I better act this way around this guy or he's gonna leave. No, I mean, it's, we're gonna be us and um, it's for everybody. And if, and if it's not, then we'll you know, cross that bridge when we come to it. But you know, we've had some people that have left our program, but we haven't had anybody leave this program because they're just flat out unhappy and didn't want to be a part of it. They left for the opportunity to, to play more at other places, uh, period, in the story. Now, you guys have now actually benefited from the transfer rule, getting Spencer Rattler from the portal this offseason. What in your, you know, you're as close to Spencer, obviously Spencer would know more than anyone, but you're as close to him as anyone. What do you think went wrong with him last year compared to how well he played back in 2020? Uh, you know, I think it's way too easy to say things went wrong with Spencer. He lost his spring center, who um, 
you got a lot of new faces and people got to play around Spencer. Now, if they were sitting there at 0 and 5 or something and he got benched, that's one thing. He's last time I checked, he's won 15 straight games as a starting quarterback. Uh, and it may be more. Last time I checked, he was the defending Big 12 champion. Last time I checked, uh, when he got benched, uh, he had a team that was undefeated, ranked top five in the country at the time. So did Spencer play as well as he would have liked last year? No. Um, did the Oklahoma offense play as well as maybe they had the year before? No. When you're the quarterback, uh, do you get way too much blame when things go wrong, too much credit when things go well? Yes. So I think it's a combination of things. But I didn't watch Spencer Rattler's tape last year and say, oh, my God, what happened to Spencer? I think it's way too easy to pinpoint that. He's uh, he, uh, he hasn't lost a game since since uh, September of 2020. So I'd say that's pretty damn good in my opinion. So getting benched the way he did, obviously, and then transferring, there had to be some mental ramifications to something like that. You know, that's a tough thing to deal with as a competitor, as an athlete. How do you deal with the mental aspect, building back that confidence for a guy in your building and getting him back into the mindset of, you know, I can do whatever I put my mind to? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think Spencer ever really lost that confidence. I mean, Spencer is a confident guy. And like I said, he knows there's some things he needed to do better last year. I mean, I watched, uh, we were playing the day that Oklahoma played Texas. I didn't get to see the game live, but it was re-aired over the summer on some channel and I was watching it. And I mean, there's a lot of things that weren't going well for Oklahoma in the first half that day. They got a punt blocked, you know, that basically gave up seven points. They couldn't, they didn't play very well on defense in the first half. And, and they probably weren't moving the ball offensively as efficiently as they would have liked. So the quarterback was the guy that, you know, takes the brunt of that of that blame. But I think Spencer knew all along that, yeah, he could certainly play better, but it wasn't like he was playing bad. And, um, you know, what happened after that, I don't know. I know Spencer's a, a good kid with a great family that's a confident guy. And and I'll be honest, never once have I had to bring him into, this, into my office or tell any of the coaches, look, we need to – really build his confidence back up. I don't think he ever lost it. Um, Frank, a change of scenery has has been uh, has gone has been a good thing for him, and it's a fresh start for for everyone involved. And I'm um, you know I'm excited to watch him play this year. So obviously, he came over from Oklahoma to South Carolina. How much of the offense that he ran at Oklahoma is he is carrying over now to South Carolina? Like, how steep is the learning curve, or how steep has it been for him? Um, it's definitely been different. You know, I mean, we. Now, there's a lot of things that uh, the way we call things, the way we communicate. I mean, it's it's different, and that's in any system. And and um, you know, uh, it, it was a learning curve. We're in the huddle a lot more than what he was at Oklahoma. Like he huddled some at Oklahoma, but not a lot. Um, we're not always in the huddle, but we're in the huddle more than he was at Oklahoma. You know, so there's things like that, taking a snap from under center. He didn't do as much of that as Oklahoma as he will here at times. But it's always not just with Spencer, but all your quarterbacks trying to make everybody feel comfortable with what you're doing and uh, making sure they feel that they they have a, a grasp of what you're asking them to do. And there's been some good communication. I mean, there's things that I'll be honest with you, there's things in our offense last year that we ran at a very high level um, at Oklahoma efficiently that I wanted to implement here that we ran last year in our program that, you know, Spencer has flat out told me he didn't feel as great about it, that he didn't love that particular concept. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't like that concept? Like we threw it every third down for a completion. But, you know, not to say that we're throwing things out that Spencer doesn't like, but there's also some give and take about 
what he's comfortable with, what he's not comfortable with, and marrying it to not just him, but every player on our offense, running backs, tight ends, wide receivers, offensive line, coaches, and, and making sure there's a good uh, good collaboration with everything that we're doing. How do you make sure you're staying ahead of the curve sort of schematically? I know your father's defenses at Virginia Tech were like renowned for being innovative and changing the game and changing how defenses were played across college football. How do you make sure that you're on the bleeding edge of that and not just saying, here's our offense, this is what we run, and then getting passed by by others? Yeah, I think one every year is different. You know, we just mm -hmm. came out of a staff meeting here a little bit ago where we were talking about that, that, you know, every season's different. And whatever was worked for the 2021 South Carolina offense, defense, special teams is it's not, it just doesn't just automatically happen the next year. Like every year you have to, build a build schemes around what you're around your personnel and, and where you are as a team and then i challenge our coaches and i want to feel the same way as a head coach like i want to be um i want to be the best head coach in the country our offensive coordinator should want to be the best offensive coordinator in the country our linebackers coach should want to be the very best linebackers coach in the country and how do you do that you constantly try and learn you you, you can't let yourself get comfortable you're always you know, looking back at the previous season and areas to improve and 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 how to uh, find new ways of doing things. You know, I think we've got an unbelievable nutrition department here that I think is the best in the country. But we need to continue to find better ways of doing things in all areas and um, not just say, OK, we've been pretty good because like you're saying, that's when you get past. And, yeah, we've been pretty good, but let's. How can what's the next step? And that's one thing that I learned from Lincoln in Oklahoma because I thought he was great at it. That you know, as good as we were on offense at Oklahoma, every year it was like, okay, what's the next step off this? What can we do differently this upcoming season to continue to stay kind of on the cutting edge of what uh, of what we were doing? Do you ever steal stuff you see on tape from other people? Always, always. Um, you know, especially I think every coach does. Mm -hmm. And then I watch a lot of tape now. Um, um as a head coach when i was coaching at oklahoma and georgia i mean i was coaching tight ends and special teams so you're watching those specific areas but now as the head coach i'm watching offense i'm watching defense i'm watching special teams of our opponents but yeah there's there's a lot of times that you know if i'm watching tape of the opposing um of the opposing offense that we're getting ready to play you know to share some thoughts with our defensive staff that i i may see something that that offense did, you know, and I'm like, I go and tell our offense coaches, say, hey, I was just watching so-and-so's defense or so-and-so's offense, and I saw this. So certainly you do that, and you especially do it as an assistant coach. I mean, I think all mm -hmm. assistant coaches, when when the offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator says, uh, you know, let's get some ideas together for the game plan, you're always going to take what you see other teams do that they had success with uh, against a team doing. So, yes. So how quickly is that? Can that go? Like you see something on tape, how quickly is that going into a playbook can go into like an install? Um, I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, um, that week sometimes. And, and, you know, that's one thing that I thought Lincoln was really good at too at Oklahoma was just being able to take, okay, um, you know, this, I'm just throwing out examples. We're playing uh, Texas and we saw something that, I don't know, Oklahoma State, offense did against Texas's defense. Well, I thought Lincoln was really, really good about being able to take that, but then with his own twist on it. Maybe 
maybe it's the same pay play, but he just flips the formation and runs it the opposite way. Or, you know, uh, I'll never forget, we we're getting ready to play Alabama in the, uh, in the playoff back in the 2018 season. We played Alabama uh, down in the Orange Bowl when I was at Oklahoma. And we took a play from that game that Auburn had ran the play against Alabama's defense the game before in the Iron Bowl or before the SEC championship game in the Iron Bowl. Well, we took that concept, but then kind of added to it. Lincoln was like, that's really good. Now, what if we did that? But we also took another element and did this as well, you know, and being able to take stuff. And then we ran it. We ran it in the Orange Bowl for a, for a big play. So always uh, stealing the process is quick. And then also trying to take the next step off maybe what you stole from somebody on tape. I absolutely love it. How, how are you as an assistant? You were assistant for two decades before you got your first head coaching gig. Are you keeping your kind of side playbook? Like, like you said, you see plays that you like. Are you like t stashing them into your playbook? Because obviously you're running, you know, what your head coach wants to run. But you probably have your own opinion on the side. Like, that's that's not going to work. I want these things over here on the side that I got. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, I uh, I was always. I think it was. I was a. I had first got into coaching, and um, and I, I guess I was at Mississippi State. And I went up to Philadelphia one time. Andy Reid was the head coach of the Eagles. And um, uh, we had a mutual friend, and Andy Reid was kind enough to sit down and visit with me for 20, 30 minutes. And one thing I took from that meeting with him, I mean, this would have been like in 2004, was he talked about how he would watch tape. And like a lot of coaches do, you just kind of kept like a library or a file of just things that you saw on tape, like schemes that that you liked. And um, um uh that has always resonated with me so i started doing that whether it be on video you know uh, just a cut up you make of ideas and things like that or or things on paper you know uh, behind me is one of my binders mm -hmm. and it's just a bunch of just offensive defensive and special teams just schemes that either i'd seen on tape and just jotted down and and drew or going to visit other college teams other nfl teams certainly i've got I got more of those things drawn up and stored than 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 you can execute, but it's always good to be able to uh, refer back refer back to, to to stuff you've seen in the past. How much philosophically about running a program though comes from your father, it, and like his the way he ran Virginia Tech for so many yeah, years? Yeah, I would say a ton, mm -hmm. um, and I've been with some great places and coaches. Uh, Georgia Leary in Georgia Tech, Philip Fulmer in Tennessee, Sylvester Croom in Mississippi State, Steve Spurrier in South Carolina, my dad, Kirby Smart at Georgia, Lincoln Raleigh at Oklahoma. I mean, I'm blessed because I've been around some awesome coaches. And I've taken from all those guys, don't get me wrong, you know, all along I was preparing to be a head coach, so you're always jotting down ideas about things you like, didn't like, things like that. So I would say there's, you know, a semblance of, all those coaches and all those programs that have uh, influenced me that you could see and hear, you know, see and feel a part of here at Carolina. But um, the bulk of it would absolutely be my dad. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, how you treat your players, how you handle your coaches, how you treat your staff, the way we practice. Uh, a lot of that is, is things that I learned from, you know, watching my dad. Like I'm, I'm younger, people see the social media things and Soulja Boy video and all that stuff, but um, our coaches here kid me a lot because I think I'm 
they will tell you like I'm very, very, very old school in a lot of ways, like especially like the way we practice and the way that we train and prepare and things like that. A little bit more of an old school flavor than just some young guy that you would think that's doing these TikTok videos and things like that for recruiting and whatnot. Um, probably not quite what you think when it comes to watching us practice and stuff like that. Yeah, that I actually sense. got my hands prior to this on a 1998 Virginia Tech defensive playbook. And the six keys to success defensively in it were, do you, do you remember what they were by chance? Okay, they were get off on the ball, coverage, run to the ball, yep. tackle, turnovers, communicate. Game hasn't changed that much. It, you know, Pretty simple. Yeah, it's universal. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and, and um, you know, I mean, I can remember back then, like, my dad, I mean, we, we would practice. This was late 90s. I mean, we would practice in full pads, you know, some, during the season, sometimes four days a week, we'd be in full pads. And we're not to that extreme, but we're not um, – um, we're still rugged, blue-collar, tough, physical, all that here as well, and we certainly practice that way. So one of the things also about your career that intrigues me that I, I've actually always been intrigued by is you coached cornerbacks, running backs, outside linebackers, tight ends, special teams, and you yourself played wide receiver. What did you prepare for each different role? Because obviously you're having to teach someone who doesn't probably know a ton about a position to be a master at that position. Yeah. How do you yourself master that role prior to even coaching them? Yeah, no, that's a uh, great question. Um, um, one, doing that, I really feel like has prepared me for the, uh, the chair that I sit in now as a head coach, mm -hmm. really prepared me for that because I have been involved in all three phases. And when I interviewed for this job, I mean, that was one thing that I've talked about a lot with Ray Tanner and Chance Miller and our school president that hired me was how coaching all these different positions, you know, I've coached all three phases and, and, and it's prepared me to be a head coach, uh, but certainly there is a learning curve. And I think for me, it was being willing to admit that I don't know something and, and learn from it. You know, I, I, um, <clears throat> when I went from coaching defense at special defense at Mississippi State after my second year to coaching running backs, you know, there was a learning curve where I went and tried to learn from uh, running back coaches and just, out, you know, bounce ideas off of them and, and pick their brain. And then I kind of got in that running back world and then my dad retired and Kirby Smart hired me at Georgia and I got hired as the tight ends coach for the and I'm at, at Georgia. I've, I've never coached tight ends in my life. And Georgia had some pretty good tight ends on that roster. Jeb Blazevich and Jackson Harris, Harris and Isaac Nauta and Charlie Warner and Jordan Davis. All those guys are either in, a, in an NFL camp after they finished playing or, or they still are on an NFL team like Charlie. And um, I'm like, man, I've never coached tight ends in my life. And just trying to learn that, and I went and uh, I went and uh, visited with uh, Jason Witten. Uh, Jason was a tight end at Tennessee when I was a graduate assistant at Tennessee. So I called up Jason. I flew out to Dallas and just sat down with him for as long as he would give me and just teach me about being a tight end. You know, you're a player. Talk to me. And then learning from other tight end coaches and. And like anybody, just studying tape and watching video and things like that. And that's the main thing I did. And, and being willing, one, to learn from the players. You know, I wasn't afraid. I mean, they're the ones that are out there in the in, in, in everything doing it and being able to sit there and ask them questions and, and learn from them as well. And, and just 
it's like almost like cramming for a test. Just like try and learn as much as you can in a short period of time and, and uh, realize that you're constantly going to continue to learn and, 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 and find new ways of teaching. All right, let's talk about some of your players now here at South Carolina. Cam Smith, cornerback, had a massive first year as a starter, obviously taking over for J.C. Horn. Israel Mukwama went to the NFL. You've coached or been around, I guess, some other first-rounders, guys like Stephon Gilmore, DeAndre Baker. How does Smith compare to guys like that? Where do you see him as a talent? Yeah, no, Cam, uh, you know, Cam's a guy that's really come along in the last year. Torian Gray, our defensive backs coach, has done an awesome job with him. And, and um, um, I'm excited about Cam. We, we, um, he's, uh, he's got size, he's got coverability, he can run, he's physical. And, and um, you know, excited about his potential and got a lot of work to do. There's no question about it. Um, but uh you know op, op, excited to excited to watch him this year and, and along with the rest of our defensive are we going to see more jaheen bell handoffs this season possibly i think jaheen bell is a guy that when the ball's in his hand good things happen he's a hard guy to tackle and um he's shown that when the ball's in his hand he's he's a weapon um there's a lot of different things he can do running the ball catching the ball blocking and uh, we got a lot of Got a, a, a lot more weapons, if you will, on offense than what we did last year. So uh, there's going to be great competition throughout the throughout the offense, and that's going to be determined in practice with you know the way that our guys practice and, and the guys that are that we can uh, that we can count on to produce and be out there on Saturdays. How do you handle guys who probably have their eyes on the NFL? Guys who like you know they're getting mock draft, they're hearing it about it on Twitter, social media that the NFL might be high in them, whatever. How do you handle that conversation of, you know, saying like staying focused on this season as opposed to and what they need to do that's best for the team right now as opposed yeah. to maybe I would what say one, it's it's always has and always will be here about the team, the team, the team. And that there we, there's not one player on our team that's that uh is above the team. And I'll never get away from that. It's always gonna be about the team. And then also understanding that. In the NFL, people would tell you, like, your tape this year matters. And, yeah, we got some guys that are on people's radars because of what they did last season. Well, the going into last year, nobody was talking about Cam Smith. Nobody was talking about Jaheim Bell. Nobody was really talking about Zach Pickens or whoever else. And and uh, they played well last year. Now they're on these NFL teams' radars. But you can you – can, it's funny. You go back and you look at all these, like, mock drafts before a season – and then the actual draft that takes place, and there's names that are on mock drafts being top five picks that don't even get drafted in the first five rounds, you know, sometimes. And, and just continuing to emphasize to them, it's all about the team. But then also, your tape this year matters. And you've got to continue to uh, – you got to continue to 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 progress as well. Yeah, I can say firsthand because I do those mock drafts. Mock drafts entertainment. Tell yeah. players the entertainment, they are not – my actual what I think is going to happen. They yes. are for entertainment well, I didn't purposes. Why do mean your draft in particular? Just <laughs> no, no, trust me. I'm saying I've missed, I've missed a ton. Don't, don't you worry. I said that's why they are <laughs> entertainment. Let's talk about a guy, though, who is already in the NFL. Kingsley Negbury. We had him with the highest pass rush grade in the SEC last year. He was a top 60 player on our board. Why do you think he fell all the way to the fifth round? That's a good question. Better question uh, you may know or some of those NFL teams. I don't know. I, I just know that J.J. Was a, was a, did a lot, was a productive guy for us last year. And, and um, uh, was a captain of our football team and excited for the things that he did last season for us and, and excited to watch him uh, in the NFL going forward as well. 
SEC actually set the record last year for most draft picks yeah. by conference. Um, so something to maybe add to the recruiting pitch there. Thank you so much, Coach Beamer. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate having me on. All right, we have Coach Brett Bielema here of the Illinois Fighting Illini on. And we're going to have a lot to talk about here, Brett, because I grew up just outside of Champaign. We were just talking about this little town called Muhammad. I went to school at the University of Illinois Laboratory High School, but I was born in Milwaukee. I grew up a Badgers fan, so a lot to talk about here. You're well-traveled in the Midwest yourself, started your playing career at Iowa, coached there for a little bit, then to Wisconsin, then to Illinois. I was known for Bush Light, Wisconsin Miller Light, Illinois trends more towards Bud Light. Of those three, which beer are you picking? Um, I don't know. I'm not really like a beer guy. I guess if I, um, I'm kind of a silver bullet probably guy, I guess I okay. would go outside of the Midwest. Coors, you're going to Coors Light. All right. That's a, that's a valid choice as well. I mean, truthfully, they all kind of taste the same if I had to do a blind taste test. Not sure I could get between, not sure I could pick between the three, but have you been to cams on campus at all i have barn. not i have not heard of cams i understand it's part of it we had an alumni group in my first uh uh spring here uh and uh, it was interesting one of the comments that came out of that was from cam so apparently it spreads many age groups and many many different uh, uh decades so i'm sure it's a, a great spot that's never been there yeah cams is the, the original cams was an absolute shithole but the new one's very impressive very impressive for a collegiate bar but uh, so I lived here in Cincinnati. Um, that's where PFF is located. After the playoff win um, over the, the Bengals had over the Raiders, Zach Taylor went around to bars in the city and gave away game balls. Have you done anything like that in terms of like building culture after wins, going out into the city and not necessarily giving away game balls, but doing, you know, promotional stuff like that? No, not, not really. Uh, um... You know, the way the uh, uh, the world works for us, right? Like there's media immediately afterwards and, mm -hmm. and a lot of times recruiting right after a game. And then we jump right into the next week. Um, unfortunately, haven't had many wins in uh, Champaign to celebrate. Obviously, I had the first one against Nebraska week zero last year and the last one against Northwestern. So, uh, but one thing we have done is we have reached out to the community. Uh, we just had over 30 uh, business owners uh, in, in last week in our building working and integrating with our student athletes. So, uh, not the same celebration level, but uh, hopefully we'll get there soon. So you grew up on a hog farm in Prophetstown, Illinois. And I usually ask everyone, you know, why they got into football in the first place. But growing up on a hog farm in northwestern Illinois, it seems like I don't even need to ask that question. It's just a given probably that you would end up playing football. But did you play any other sports growing up? You know, my first sport was actually swimming. Um, I was part of the – I grew up in a little town called Prophetstown, Illinois, and we were the Prophetstown Piranhas, um, a swim team that uh, – Actually, I swam because my older sister swam, my older brother swam, so that kind of got me into it. Uh, my first uh, truly organized sport was swimming, but I, I grew up playing golf. Um, I was heavily involved in that, uh, Little League Baseball. Really, anytime there was a sport, uh, I got involved with it. Um, didn't start playing football my first year was, uh, in seventh grade. A lot of times guys start earlier, but seventh grade was really my first opportunity to be in, involved in uh, football, but had two older brothers that played the sport, um, and that's probably what my driving force was, but I was a high school wrestler. I was involved in band. I was a tuba player. A lot of people don't know that one as well. So really tried to be active as much as I could and, and uh, stay involved. Would not have guessed the swimming or the tuba. That, those, were not, those were not on the radar. The golf one I had actually read about. I, I heard that before every season you go play out on Sundays. Do you still do that? And, and which course are you playing in the Champaign-Urbana area if you are going to do that round? You know, um, I really haven't played much golf in Champaign. Um, uh, just because of the of the job and responsibilities 
And now I have two little ones at home. So if I'm in Champaign and, and have uh, four or five hours of freedom, it's usually with my girls, uh, with my family. So haven't got out and about much, uh, but uh, definitely I love the perspective of, you know, I think um, golf allows you to kind of just be at ease, right? And, and get away from the reality of the moment for a little bit. Mike Smalls, who has uh, done an unbelievable uh, job here, as uh, I was able, fortunate to play a round of golf with him and uh, Brad Underwood this year in a fundraiser this past summer, one of the more enjoyable days of the of the summer for me. But now we focus on football and do nothing but it. Oh, yeah. Love that. Love that. So uh, you also, growing up on the hog farm, have you seen Sam Pittman's hog statue at Arkansas that he has in his house there? I have not. Uh, if not, oh, if you haven't I seen it. I left Arkansas, kind of left that all behind us. So it it, it is impeccable. It's it's a sight to behold. They asked him about it at, uh, at the media, SEC media days. But it reminded me that Illinois doesn't have a mascot. I mean, when are they going to get on, you know, deciding on, because they had talks about a belted kingfisher a couple of years ago back in 2020 that never really came to fruition, but I feel like it's a necessity. When is Illinois going to get a mascot back again? Yeah, you know, that um, that conversation is probably above my pay grade. Uh, I just kind of line up and we've obviously b built and nurtured around the family uh, conversation here, mm -hmm. uh, obviously on your shirt and uh, everybody in this building is not just kind of something we say, it's something we believe in. So that's kind of been our model because we don't really have a mascot or a branding out there. The Fighting Illini, uh, we actually have a new campaign, Hail to the Orange, which is getting a little bit of legwork. So I think the the, the standing uh, uh, work in progress for our mascot is something that continues on today. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I know from growing up there, how different the culture is um, basically around the football program compared to the basketball program there, compared to football programs elsewhere. How do you build that culture to make Saturdays at Memorial Stadium a destination? Because well, the I easiest thing we can do is win games, right? I think, Mike, I, there, there's – no doubt, um, everywhere I've been, one of the things that Josh talked to me about when we first had conversations before I took the job was every place I had been uh, had been able to build a tradition that had continued winning. You know, my, my time at Iowa, my time at Kansas State, time at Wisconsin, and those things attracted uh, uh, him to when I came here, right? And um, I think all those things that exist at those other places can happen here at Illinois. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight. It's a continued work in progress. I think three things jump out to me since I came here. A tremendous history and pride in the university overall, right? In the in the Champaign-Urbana area, uh, there's a great deal of pride in Illinois and what it means and what it represents. Second thing is, it's not like it's not been done before. I came here as a student athlete, competed in Memorial Stadium on the highest level, two high-ranked football teams uh, uh, that that uh, were competed in the highest uh, level, not only in our conference but in the country. Uh, and I think we can get back to that. And the third thing is just this recruiting database, right? Like in the world we're in. Uh, Illinois itself, we're, we're talking a lot about keeping our, our state border and our players in state. Um, Illinois is going to put out 20, 30, 40 Division One football players a year. And if we can get a, a pulse on that group and, and get them to stay here in state and build that culture off of players from the state of Illinois, I think it's going to be a huge step in the right direction. What have you learned from that? And I like you bringing up sort of drawing that border around Illinois, because when you took over at Wisconsin, the border was drawn. You, you know, you, Wisconsin had the in-state recruits in Wisconsin. And a lot of that was due to the work of Barry Alvarez and a lot of parallels between Alvarez when he took over at Wisconsin and you taking over at Illinois now. What have you learned from him or talking with him about building that border, about keeping in-state recruits and about just going from the ground up and building the program? You know, it was interesting when I went to work for Coach uh, Alvarez, he had actually been in Iowa as well, right? So he had been through that that growth uh, during Hayden Fry. And um, one of the things he mentioned early on was, right, you, you have to be represented by the people that you're surrounded by. And and kind of recruit to that, right? <laughs> I remember uh, going into a grocery store and seeing a guy that was like 6'6", six, six, uh, stacking groceries, right? Like there's big people uh, in, in 
in that state. And the same thing goes through here in Illinois, right? We have the, the central part of the state that really kind of has an agricultural background, a little bit uh, uh, more of that flavor than up north in the Chicagoland area. You get to the south in St. Louis, uh, to the east, and you get close to Indianapolis. Like we're very unique in the fact that we sit in the middle of a lot, a lot of different geographic backgrounds, um, um, population bases. So Illinois has got to be a blend of all that. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We, we've built up the state border as best we can, but we'll also, you know, we have Joey Okla as a uh, incoming freshman that we're very excited about from the state of Wisconsin, um, uh, have been able to go into Ohio, been able to go into St. Louis and, and pull some of that talent back in state here, which has been a huge deal for us. And so your teams have always kind of reflected your ethos as, you know, hard-nosed, disciplined, smash-mouth type of teams. But also, like, offenses in college football has come a long way since you started coaching in the mid-2000s as a head coach in just the spread aspect and the passing aspect and how much that has dictated offensive football. Like, the, the you guys, the game against Michigan back in 2010 where you ran it 30 straight times, just that doesn't exist nearly as much as it did back then. A lot of teams are spreading. How do you keep that ethos of being a, diff, a tough football team while also saying, hey, we have to put some points on the scoreboard. We have to be able to score at will to keep up with some of these teams that are going to be facing the Big Ten. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people, obviously, like you just did, go back to, to what they think or what they saw or what they believed um, brought us success at some of the spots I'd been before. But in reality, the balance was real, right? Like when we were balancing, running the ball 200 yards, throwing the ball over 200 yards a game and, and 400 yards of offense, that you can win a lot of football games that way. Um, I remember I, I faced a lot of criticism. We beat a couple teams in the Big Ten like 70 and, and 75 to, uh, uh, you know, a completely different uh, a score on the other side of the scoreboard. And I got blown up for being too, too scoring too much, right? So I, I think one of the things we've tried to do here is be good at what Illinois can be great at. Um, obviously, I made offensive transition a year ago uh, when I changed out coordinators, but our philosophy has to, you know, continue to be, we got to make our good players play great. We got to minimize our weaknesses and maximize our scoring opportunities. And I think that's what you're going to see this fall out of our team is may look a little bit different than we have in the past. And for me personally as a head coach, but hopefully it's doing what we do best. Did you glean anything in your two years with Bill Belichick in terms of that conversation? Because he's kind of in the same boat in that they've always been power run team, downhill, all that, and not necessarily spread to throw that you're seeing a lot in the NFL. What did you learn from him in your two years there about how to stay true to basically who you are? You know, that was a, a two-year uh, time in my life that, that you know, the, the value of that was you can't put a price tag on it from, from um, not only just X's and O's, but program philosophy, how you build a culture, um, how you how you set up schedules, uh, how you handle most critical moments versus uh, uh, the detail of daily, daily grind. So, yeah, it was, it was an unbelievable time in my life. I think offensively, you know, to play and, and, and watch Tom Brady um, and realize – you know, what leadership does to a program, not just offensively, uh, but in, you know, in, in, in its effect in the defensive room and the special teams, uh, but just the pressure in that room uh, to, to be successful, right? And the pressure in that room to not be the weak link. It was just very uh, uh, easy for me to see why they'd had success and why they continue to have success. It, it's because of the amount of pride that people take in working together. And that's, that's something that we're trying to do in all phases of our, of our program here as well. So obviously you spent a few years in the NFL and from a lot of people I've talked to and just a lot of reports, it seems like college coaches with the new wave of a lot of the different rules about recruiting and whatnot are wanting to get to NFL for the stability of it. And a lot of coaches want 
um, to just get into the league. A lot of people were beating down the door to try to do so, but you were kind of the opposite. You were in the NFL already, decided to go back to college in this new landscape. What was that thought process like for you coming back to college? Well, I, to be honest, this job was very intriguing to me. I'd, I'd uh, you know, paid attention to the University of Illinois job since I was a, a young man. Right? I had a child before I even got into coaching. Uh, when I played at, at Iowa, obviously to compete against Illinois, my home state, uh, then spent some time at Kansas. But when I went to Wisconsin, we came in here and recruited quite a bit, competed against Illinois. Um, that that idea of coaching here, uh, especially when I transitioned to Arkansas and then when I was in the NFL, the opportunity to coach at Illinois had always really just jumped out to me. I think it's a it's a job that you know maybe hasn't yet been discovered. I know there's been flashes, there's been times, um, but I think this place can have sustained success for for a, a world of college football that not a people not a lot of people can discover. I know. You know, going back in the day, a long time ago, right, there was a, a strong history of, of success here at Illinois. And I think in the common era of college football that we are in now today, um, it's it's an area that can happen um, and be be sustained for a long time. So that, that intrigues me. Um, I get the question, you know, college football is a completely different animal on the business side of things, maybe four, five, six, seven years ago. I think that because of the portal world, NIL, there's going to be a little bit more of a, 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 a commonality than a difference. And um, I think my time in the NFL is really helping me now in college football with the portal world, which is really free agency. Uh, the NIL, where players are getting paid, uh, you know, in college football now on an unprecedented level than any time ever before. Those are a lot more common things that have been been, been beneficial for me to already experience in the NFL. Yeah, your last year at Arkansas, those like NIL didn't exist. The transfer portal didn't exist. You know, you come back and there's COVID restrictions. Guys are skipping bowl games. How, how much has your job changed since the last time you were head coach in college football? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, two big ones, obviously, that everybody talks about are the portal and the NIL. But um, really, I would tell you just the uh, the emergence of um, some of the recruiting rules. Uh, you know, everybody entered in under Zoom, right? Now we got 85 scholarships. So it kind of, in a way, has eliminated the, the, the uh, um, emphasis on signing day because you really truly can have a 365-day signing period because guys can come on and off scholarship at an unprecedented level than ever before. So uh, the NIL world is, is something that, you know, on the front end of it here, I think is something that's very exciting for our student athletes, for us as coaches to know our players can get rewarded financially now for, uh, for the things that they do. And, and, you know, for me, the challenge is to collaboratively uh, with, with a, you know, without a um, creating certain niches or you, you want to try to create, an environment that your whole roster gets competitive advantage in NIL. And then the transfer portal for us, we haven't lost many, but we've gained a lot of good players that, you know, give an immediate fix or an immediate need uh, addressed in our program. That is, it's really fun and exciting time and keeps you on your toes to be quite honest. As I say, do you ever see or find yourself maybe laying off a player with criticism or, you know, punishment for messing up or something like that where, because knowing that, Hey, if I piss him off, he could be out the door tomorrow. And that's the way the world to Mike, that's a great question. I think I think a lot of people have that perspective. I would tell you in our program, and our players would probably tell you this, um, we treat everybody with the same brush, right? And, and I would tell you that, you know, everybody says, well, how is an 18-year-old young man different now today in 2022 than he was in 2002 and, and, and really in 92, right? Like, I believe young men crave success, right? They, they It may come in a different way now. You have cell phones, you have social media, you have an, an environment that we've never had experience before in college football. But if you can give a young man something that he can use as a tool to make himself better, they, they flock to that, they run to it. 
Um, yes, I don't think anybody enjoys getting, uh, you know, disciplined or anybody in, enjoys being told that they did something right. But what we try to do is breed an environment that our kids, and, and I tell them this all the time, you should be more concerned when we don't talk to you or when we don't correct you, because the things I say to you are things that are trying to make you become a, become a better person than you've ever been, become a better corner than you've ever been, a better lineman, a better tackle, a better nose guard, a better linebacker. The reason I say things is try to make you better. And I think we've really done a good job of building that environment and trust. And hopefully that'll be shown this year in our results. Yeah, you said kids today aren't necessarily that different from kids back 10, 15 years ago. That brings up a story that I want to talk about, which was a story that you don't hear too much about anymore. But Joe Thomas, when he played defensive line in the Capital One Bowl back in 2005, do you think we'll ever see anything like that again? A top-tier offensive lineman, elite prospect, going and flipping sides just to play in a bowl? Is that the days of that over? You know, Joe was an exceptional, you know, there's not many Joe Thomases in this world, right? Um, uh, he's kind of a, a, a guy that you can literally look back in your career and say he was a career uh, player for you, right? You never really had a player at that level. But, um, on, but fortunately for me, I have had a lot of first round draft picks that have gone on to do great things. But um, there's a lot of guys that, that bring value that maybe um, you know, Joe's thought of because of what he accomplished in college and in the NFL. But we've had a lot of guys in my time, uh, you know, play both ways, maybe not to that same extent, but um, Joe was a rare breed, right? And, and I think the ability to say you're going to see another guy like him is, is not very common. But, you know, uh, I've been fortunate when I went in the NFL or when I, when I went to Arkansas, I noticed and, and somebody wrote an article that three of my former players, Joe Thomas, Russell Wilson, and J.J. Watt had three top jersey sales in the NFL. And, and those things don't happen by chance. You got really good players that do things in the right way and they're respected in the, in the world of football because of it. So I, those are rare opportunities, but hopefully I do get a couple more of those. Yeah. You've coached, I mean, the offensive line that you've coached, you put your dream O line together. You, you, that stacks up against any head coach in the country, Joe Thomas, Frank Ragnow, Travis Frederick, Kevin Zeitler, Ricky Wagner. Like that's an, that's an all pro offensive line right there that you've coached. How early on, I know in the NFL, a lot of times, People say early on in careers, you can tell when the guy's special or you can tell when a guy's going to be a bust. That's a few practices. A lot of people say, is that the same at the collegiate level? When those guys walked in your building, did you know? You, those guys you just rattled off, you had a pretty good indication. Now, a lot of hard work, desire, attitude came and went into it. But I would say early on, most coaches, after you've been in it a while, like, you know, I've been, I'm going in my 14th year as a head coach, 30 years in this business. Like, you, you really, um, after about a month into it, probably have a good perspective on, hey, if this guy does what he's capable of doing, if you can develop him the way he needs to be developed, if he can, unfortunately, in, in the world that we live in, in the sport we play, a lot of times health has a lot to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. All the guys you just mentioned really got through. Joe had an ACL his, his uh, uh, sophomore year, but for the most part, those players all stayed pretty injury-free. So that's a another X factor that plays into this. But I would say, you know, even just after a summer with our incoming freshman class, there's a handful of guys that you can literally say like, Hey, if we do what we're capable of doing development wise, if he has a great attitude like he has now and we can maximize his abilities on the field, you'll, you'll potentially see these guys as NFL players. So I think it does jump out quicker than people think. Has there ever been a player that surprised you in that early on? You're like, this guy is not, does not, doesn't have it, doesn't have the right attitude. And then by the end of his career had turned things around and then blossomed into one of those special yeah, there's a couple of players. Uh, I remember uh, we recruited a young man by the name of Brian Schofield, who was out of the Chicagoland area. And um, really his first two years never really saw the field, uh, got on the field his third year in the bowl game. 
Um, and then, you know, in his senior year, literally turned into one of the best players in college football as his position. And, and um, it was because of a lot of hard work, attitude, development, uh, a lot of trust and faith from the coaches. But he flipped the switch, right? And, yeah, there's there's players literally probably at every position um, that you can go to. I think, you know, last year in our program, we had a young man by the name of Kirby Joseph when we first got here. Not a lot of people knew about him. He played offense, played defense, literally asking us what position he should play. Um, and he left early for the draft this year as a third-round pick to the Detroit Lions. If he would have stayed for another year, could have possibly been a first- or second-round pick. So he's a guy that changed the perspective of what people thought of him in a hurry because he bought into what we were selling, um, had a lot of really good natural ability and talent, and we put him in a position to be successful, and now he's being rewarded forever because of it. All right, last question here. I'm going to touch on recruiting just a little bit because, as you said, that's how you're going to turn around the program. It's by getting the dudes in the building in the first place. And you guys have incredible facilities there now. I went and toured uh, state-of-the-art football performance center there. But I want to hear about a recruiting story where you blew it, where you got went into a guy's house or you're talking to a guy, you got him hook, line, sinker, and something's you screwed up, you said the wrong thing, and something went wrong. Are there any that come to mind that you just wish you had a second chance on? You know, um, you don't have to one of the names, things but... we always talk about in recruiting is you got to find out who the decision maker is. Sometimes it's the young man. Sometimes it's someone that you don't even, you know, aren't aware of the connection, right? It could be a parent. It could be a girlfriend. It could be an uncle. It could be a, a an assistant basketball coach, even though you're recruiting a football player. I think the times as coaches, we get surprised. It's, it's because there's, uh, you know, really a, a limited window of time to know these guys. And maybe there's a deciding uh, a person that's in their life that we haven't even met, right? Like it comes out afterwards. And that's why I really challenge our coaches. As a head coach, for instance, um, I'm only allowed to go to their home one time. Uh, the assistants get to go six times. Um, so you, you really try to express to those guys how important it is to gather the information around us. We get to know them very well. We get to know the family that we're you know, allowed to, to visit with and meet, but it's it's those hidden factors that really become a a, a key factor as far as just one exact point like I can tell you there's a million stories that uh, are great you know I've been in a house where a monkey came out of the back room I've been out of there where a, a lizard a, 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 a snake um, you know pets you got people that come from all different kinds of walks of life um, you know one of the things I always enjoy is a hey coach when we come and see you for me I get one chance to meet you and your family in your house and I love it because that day I can learn something about you that, you know, maybe three years down the road when we're, you know, competing for a, a championship, I can relate back to that moment in that day and that person that I met, right? Um, I had a parrot that was, you know, quoting John Wayne movies uh, on a home visit uh, from, the, from the kitchen, right? So, like, you got to be prepared for the unprepared moment uh, as a head coach and really in college football that, that a lot of people never see. I love it. Thanks so much for your time, Coach. Really good luck this season to you, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate it, Mike. I-L-L. -L.